you would turn to the 11th Psalm, Psalm 11, we're going to be studying from there for this hour this morning. I appreciate Kai leading us in some Psalms this morning, very encouraging, and you can't go wrong with singing scripture. We know that's going to be beneficial to us spiritually and pleasing to God, and certainly I think that we've been edified this morning. It's good to be with everyone, to be able to worship our God together. Psalm 11, a psalm of David, through the Spirit he pens, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. We're told in Romans, the 15th chapter in verse four, that whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We have a great need of patience, of endurance, of long suffering in a world of uncertainty and inconsistency that is tainted with sin. And along those lines, we need comfort. Comfort in times of hardship and heartache, but also that idea of exhortation in the word to do what is right, to always pursue the course of righteousness that we find in God's will. And what Paul through the Spirit says there is that the Old Testament writing provides that for us. There have been people I have heard of, I've not really encountered it myself personally, but there have been people I've heard of in the church, Christians, who have suggested that we have no business reading from and preaching from and studying in our Bible classes from the Old Testament because it was nailed to the cross. And we're under the new covenant today. I think that manifests a great deal of ignorance, but it certainly is harmful to our faith because even in 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells Timothy, that those Old Testament scriptures make us wise for salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. It's that tutor to bring us to Christ and among many things, such as showing us we're in need of a Savior and that we're confined under sin without the new covenant and the blood of Jesus. It also reveals to us accounts of men and women of faith and then men and women of great wickedness who were unfaithful to the Lord. And through that, we read and learn how God expects us to be before Him. He's the same God. He has the same nature. He has the same character. And so while the law has changed, many moral concepts and inherent concepts within God's nature obviously have not changed. And the way that He would deal with man in regard to a relationship he sustains with them through a covenant that he has made with them has not changed. God is the same God, 
and we are the same kind of people he has created. And so reading these accounts do a great deal to help us live as Christians, to understand our God, to have a closer relationship with him. And who better to learn from than a man who is described as being one after God's own heart in David. He was not a perfect man. He was certainly not a man because of his righteousness that was exempt from trouble and heartache and justice and unfairness. He grappled with temptation. He grappled with despair. He grappled with enemies, not just Satan, but those who are physically assaulting him in his life and his family. But through it all, he sought God faithfully. When he did fall short, he got back up and sought God and his grace and his mercy. And Psalm 11 is a wonderful psalm which reflects on parts of David's life where we find him in trouble, where he's living righteously, but there is injustice about him. There's uncertainty there's a great deal of adversity, but he finds steadiness of faith in the God who is worthy of our great attention and our great praise. It tells us in verse 3 that apparently some of David's friends, when they told him, flee as a bird to your mountain, said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Have you ever felt in your life personally, or don't you see on a broader scale, that the foundations are destroyed in this world, in this nation, that justice is not upheld, that morality has been trashed, that love is twisted and tainted and is not true to what the Bible reveals it to be. In your life, have you ever felt like the foundations are crumbling beneath you? Your, your home life's not going like it should. Your, your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you've got a great friendship that has fallen through the cracks. Maybe you're in dire straits financially or in other ways. And have you wondered, what can I do as a person of faith, as a person of righteousness, when all the rules are being suspended, when God is being mocked, when his righteous word is being abandoned? What, what can a righteous person do? All those things that I try to live by, all those things that I would appeal to for comfort and stability, everyone else is throwing them out the window. So what can I do? And I think that's the situation that David finds himself in. And we can learn from his godly attitude of faith and confidence in a time where really there's nothing there that would lead to faith and confidence in regard to the circumstances about him. Yet David knows God is true. And so consider Psalm 11. It is a psalm in David. We see it in the inscription. So it reflects on a time, at least of David's life. Sometimes we find inscriptions that show specifically what the psalm is referring to. This is not one of them. But the content is telling. Notice in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so it's a time of uncertainty, of upheaval where law and order have been destroyed or suspended, where righteousness has been trampled and justice has been neglected and where the fear of God is not found in great amount. The foundations are destroyed. And so while there's no specific event mentioned, 
within this psalm or within the subscription that is before it or the superscription before it, there is at least two occasions in David's life that this and many other psalms without those superscriptions fit very closely. We remember early in David's life that he had to flee from King Saul as he pursued his life relentlessly. And then when David is made king after his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite, God had promised him that even there would be calamity and violence from his own household and his son Absalom usurped the throne by treasonous conspiracy. But I think that in this psalm, as we consider its content, there are especially two occasions that seem to fit very well the contents of this psalm. And I want us to think about what he says there before in verse 5, because this is telling as well. We can learn a lot about what the psalm might have reference to from its very content. When certainly he's encouraged to flee because the righteous are helpless as the foundations are destroyed. This is something that David remembers that would cause him not to flee at this moment. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. David is understanding at this point in time, though there's injustice and he's living faithfully, though there is adversity and calamity that he's undeserving of. He's being tested. His faith is being tested. What are you going to do in this situation, David? Are you going to appeal to fleshly strength? Are you going to lose your faith in God? Or are you going to stand steady with faith in the one who is in control? And so it reflects a time of certainly injustice and adversity where David is in grave danger, yet at this time he is not going to flee. He's refusing to heed his friend's counsel. I think it's very possible that this refers to the time in David's life when he is in Saul's court, brought in to sing psalms to him and soothe his spirit as the Lord's spirit has departed from Saul and he is given a distressing spirit and David is sought out to play him music to soothe his soul. And he makes him his armor bearer And then David in 1 Samuel 17 goes out to the battlefront against the Philistines when the champion Goliath is confronting those people. And when no one else would stand up, David, the small shepherd boy, does. And we remember the story well, how with a stone and a sling, he slew the giant Goliath and cut off his head. And so when Saul found out about this and realized who it was that did this, He made him commander over men of war. And so David from then on is sent out to battle and fought valiantly and God being with him brought him great victory. You remember very well in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and in verse 11, after coming back from a battle with the Philistines where David had great success, the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, and then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. 
The very next verses describe a time when David is playing music for him as his spirit is distressed and Saul gets angry and tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. But David is able to escape. In verse 16, it says, All Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. In verse 11, it had said that he escaped his presence two more times. And so here you've got a situation where David's life is being sought by Saul in his great jealousy and bitterness, but it says that, that Israel and Judah loved David. You think that someone might tell him about the danger that lies before him when you have Saul in the very next section of 1 Samuel chapter 18 conspire to kill David by saying that he can have Michal, his daughter, as his wife, but what you have to do to pay the dowry is give me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines? It's kind of interesting and ironic because David later would kill Uriah the Hittite with a sword through battle. That's exactly what Saul was trying to do to him in 1 Samuel 18. You go get me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines and his whole plan was that he would fall by the sword. You think someone might have told David because the whole nation loves him that this is what Saul plans for you? But David did not shirk his responsibility. He actually went and he fought the Philistines and he accomplished Great things. And so it could have been in Psalm 11 that right here at this juncture in David's life, that his friends told him, You need to just flee to the mountains. Shirk your responsibilities. There's nothing here for you. The foundations are crumbled. And David said, No, I trust in the Lord and he will deliver me. It says in 1 Samuel 18 26, when Saul told him the dowry would be a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, it pleased him. He had trust in God. To deliver him. But I think even more than that, the psalm might fit when later on David is pursued by Saul as he flees from his presence and he goes into the stronghold of Adullam in 1 Samuel chapter 21 after he had taken McCall as his wife and she helps him escape from Saul's pursuit. And he makes a covenant with Jonathan in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel who tells him the plans of his father to take his life. He flees and he finds some aid by Ahimelech, the priest, giving him the showbread, which was actually not lawful for him to do. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 22, he flees to Gath of the Philistines. And when they find out who he is, this man who has slain many Philistines, he acted mad and then he fled from them and went into the stronghold of Adullam. First Samuel 22 and verse 1, it says that he escaped to the cave of Adullam. His family went to Moab while he was in the stronghold of Adullam. But then in verse 5, something interesting happens. Gad the prophet in First Samuel 22 and verse 5 came to him and said, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. And so David is hiding because his life is at stake. He's in a stronghold and a prophet of God tells him, go into the most dangerous part of the land there is right now for you. Go back to Judah. And when he goes back to Judah, Saul finds out that he's in the wilderness of Judah. He then ends up killing the prophets, 85 of them that actually helped him, the priests that is, 85 of them that helped him in chapter 21, he is bloodthirsty and blood drunk. He wants David's life. But David had followed God's command to go back to Judah. But then in chapter 23, a city of Judah, Kila, 
is being attacked by the Philistines. And so David inquires of the Lord, what do you want me to do here? And God tells him, you need to go save the city. But then it's interesting in 1 Samuel 23 and in verse 3. It tells us David's men said to him, look, we are afraid here in Judah. Why? Because Saul's there trying to find David and kill him and his men. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? I think it's right here where they could have said, the foundations are destroyed, David. Saul is relentlessly pursuing you. You shouldn't be worried about the Philistines at Kilah right now. You should flee as a bird to your mountains. But God had just told him to save the city. So David inquires of the Lord again in 1 Samuel 23, and God tells him, I'm with you. Go take Kilah. And he does. And he finds success, and he delivers the city from the Philistines. And so what we have in Psalm 11 is a time when David is being pursued relentlessly, where there's no justice in the land, where a righteous man is being pursued by one who has given up all semblance of piety before God. And his friends feel how helpless the situation is. But David has responsibility. David, as a righteous man, has more righteousness to pursue. And he says, I'm trusting in the Lord. The Lord's in control here. Far be it from me to doubt that and to shirk my responsibility. So consider with me Psalm 11. At first, we read of the advice given to David. It says in verse 1, David says, In the Lord I put my trust. How then can you say to my soul? Here's their advice to him. Maybe it was right there when God told him, You go save Kyla. And his men said, Not only is Saul seeking our lives, but now you want to go into battle with the Philistines? You need to just run. Maybe they said it then. Flee as a bird to your mountain. For look, the wicked bend their bow and make ready the arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. You think about that for a moment. He's pursuing the thought of going into battle with a foreign enemy. And at his back would be Saul seeking to take his life. And so you've got the foreign enemy, the domestic enemy. No wonder his peers are saying, you need to just run away. Go back to Adullam. Go back to the stronghold that you left. But Gad told him to leave, a prophet of God. And God told him to go save Kyla. This is their reason for suggesting he flee. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David, we know you're innocent. We know you're righteous. We know you have every right to be confident in God and upset about the situation but everything that you've relied upon to this point in time is not there anymore. It's destroyed. Saul is not standing for truth. He's the leader of this country and he's not leading them in righteousness. He's not leading them in equity or justice. There's no honor in Saul. There's no honor in the people that he's leading. There's no integrity. Law and order has been flushed down the toilet. There's no faithfulness to God here. The religious leaders even have been slaughtered. He slaughtered all the priests. What can you appeal to? You can't go to the courts. You can't appeal to the law of God. That's just being trodden under their feet. So you can understand their reservations. But here's David's response in faith. 
He said in verse one, in the Lord, I put my trust. So how can you say these things to me? I trust in God. Why would you tell me to run away when I'm on God's side? So God's on my side. And here's what he meant by that in verse one. In the Lord, I put my trust. How dare you say this to me? How could you say, just flee as a bird to your mountains and what can the righteous do? What do you mean, what can the righteous do? I trust in God. Notice verse four. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord is in his holy temple. Saul is not holy. He's far from holy. He's prideful. He's arrogant. He's bitter. He's bloodthirsty. He's a mass murderer. Do you understand that? He just murdered 85 priests in cold blood. But God's holy. God is separate from evil. He inhabits holiness. He is holy. And so while all that's being abandoned by others, there is one who always has been, who is, and always will be, whose very nature is holy, holy, holy. You remember Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 when he is commissioned to go to Judah and to preach doom and destruction, that he is holy, holy, holy. And on top of that, he says he's in his holy temple and his throne is in heaven. And so You've got everyone in the muck here. They're all in this filth. David can't escape it. He's in the miry pit of unrighteousness and unfairness and injustice and sin and unholiness. He is surrounded by wickedness. The waves are crashing about him, as the Psalms say so many times, giving us that figure of helplessness. But God's above it all. He is in heaven. He's above all of this. He transcends all of this filth, and if you put your trust in him, it's going to bring you up out of it. But not only that, he says God is seeing all of this. His eyes are beholding it and testing the sons of men. You know, the world will tell you when bad things happen, and God very well could have stopped it from happening. That's always the case, brethren. If there's ever a death that has occurred on this planet, God could have stopped it. And so when bad things happen, those who are opposed to truth and goodness will try to undercut your faith by saying, if God is good and all powerful, why didn't he stop it from happening? Here's what David is understanding. The fact that these things are happening is not evidence of God's indifference. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he doesn't have compassion. It's not that this does not concern him. But he's placed men on earth with eternity in their hearts and he is testing whether they will live for the eternal things or whether they will live for the world. And so I understand what's going on here. And not only that, David says in verse five that the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, the New American Standard Bible puts, I'm being tested here. So it's not just that the wicked are being tested and God will destroy them for their wickedness. They will get what's coming to them but if I decide to shirk my responsibilities to turn my back on God and righteousness to be a coward in a trying moment, I'll be judged for that too. The Lord is testing the righteous. What are you going to do in this situation? And David has this kind of sobriety of mind where as he's spiritually mature, he's able to understand there's more to this 
than what meets the eye. And that's why when he has two opportunities to kill Saul, he says, that's not within my authority. Who am I to take and lay a hand on the Lord's anointed? And what he manifests is an understanding of what Paul reveals in Romans chapter 12, that we're to give place to wrath. Vengeance is the Lord's. Don't repay evil with evil, but overcome it with good because God will repay. Verse six, he says, upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. It may seem that their portion is riches, is fame, is power, is an ease of life at this time when I'm fleeing for my life in the wilderness and hiding in caves and in forests. But their portion is actually fire and brimstone and a burning wind. But his portion is the Lord. He says the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness and his countenance beholds the upright. The American Standard Bible says that the upright will behold his face. What he's saying is that the righteous will have God's favor. They'll be in fellowship with God and that's the only thing that I actually want. And so in the Lord, I put my trust. I realize the situation is difficult. I realize that things aren't looking good for us. But as long as God is God and we are his people, we have nothing to fear. As another psalm tells us, I will not fear what can man do to me. And so we need to learn from this. We need to see David as a great example to follow, a man of faith who went through times that we could not even fathom. You ever felt that you've been treated unfairly? It's just not fair. None of this makes sense. It's not fair. Let's humble ourselves and look at how unfair David's life was at this time. And then look at his faith. He didn't throw a pity party for himself. He didn't give himself license to do what he thought should be done. He didn't take justice into his own hands. He said, in the Lord, I put my trust. I want to tell you something. We can learn from Psalm 11 that God is the foundation that never, ever fails. He says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Certainly there are times in our life where whether it's society or men in general, maybe personal circumstances in your life, the the laws of the land have changed and now they're not favorable to our position of faith anymore. All of that kind of stuff under the sun ebbs and flows. And so what might be safety today cannot be found tomorrow. What might be right and just today is going to be injustice tomorrow. There's a common saying I'm sure you've heard, consistency, thou art a jewel. That's the state we live in today. Where's the consistency? Where's the stability? Where's the reliability? It's never been on earth, brethren. It's never been with men, even your spouse, even your parents, even the leaders of this church and the leaders in this country. It's never been with men. Stability. That foundation that is firm and true and reliable. It's always been God. It's always been God. Near the end of his reign and life in 2 Samuel 22, the historian puts in, Well, we actually read in Psalm 18, 
A psalm that David wrote, it says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And what he says here is telling. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. God is his rock. That's a firm and sure foundation. That's a foundation you can rely upon for stability and consistency, for protection and salvation. That was his foundation. And it's the firm foundation for us, brethren. And notice in verse 4, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. So we might have the question asked us, or we might be asked the question, what can the righteous do? In a society like we live in, What can the righteous do? If you're in a position in your life where things are not fair and things are just not looking great for you, though you're faithful, what can you do? What can you rely upon? He says, God is still worthy to be praised. I'm not going to stop serving Him. I'm not going to stop worshiping Him. I'm not going to start calling upon His goodness and expounding upon that to the people who are lost in this world. I'm not going to stop doing His bidding. I'm not going to stop working in His vineyard. That's what the righteous can do. They can stay and rely upon the firm foundation that never fails. You remember well, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said, he spoke a small parable after he spoke about the kingdom and the laws included in it, the character of its citizens. And he said, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these things of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall and it said that the people were astonished because he taught as one having authority and that's why it's the firm rock. He is the creator, the lawgiver, he is the sustainer of life And his words are what we need to build our life on. Something that we can rely upon. You know, people say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And Jesus is saying, if you ever do that, it's with me. That's where you need to put everything. Because it's completely reliable. I think we also learned from Psalm 11 that any difficulty we experience is maybe not caused by God but it's always allowed by God as a test. Evil comes from Satan. Remember in in 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul talks about because of the abundance of revelations, the thorn in the flesh was given him. He calls it a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to torment him. It certainly is coming from Satan. Who can forget the story of Job where he walked about on the earth seeking whom he could devour, like 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 says. Certainly it comes from Satan, and he means it for our destruction, but the fact that it happens means God is allowing it to happen. So he reflects in the psalm. He is beholding all of this, and he's still holy, but he's testing not only the wicked, but he's testing the righteous. This is why in Hebrews 3, the Hebrew writer says, Beware, lest there be an evil spirit in departing from the living God. 
And it says, exhort one another while it is called today's lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We get it in our minds as Satan places it there that when we're experiencing difficulty, the way out of that difficulty is through some unrighteous means, some physical pleasure or our will getting the job done instead of waiting upon the Lord where then we'd mount up with wings like eagles. It's a test. The deliverance will come. The joy will come. The end will come. The reward will come. But right now, there is the call for endurance. At 1 Peter chapter 1, we read about the necessity of trials. He says, We greatly rejoice in that hope, if need be, for now you are grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying it is necessary for your faith to be tested. You might ask why. In verse 5, he spoke about that hope and the fact that we are kept for that hope by the power of God, but through faith. And so we, we understand the power of God. We have no quarrels about that. We know that's reliable. We know that's enough to bring us to that reward. But you notice the channel through which the power of God operates is faith. What if that power, that ability that God possesses within his very nature and he so desperately wants to use to our aid is made impotent because we don't have faith that is genuine? That's why our faith needs to be tested. Every time you go through a difficulty, you may wonder why exactly this difficulty has come. You may wonder, did I have anything to do with bringing it upon myself? Did someone else close to me do something to me? One thing you can never doubt is that God is testing you. He wants to see your faith genuine. This is why in James 1, James says, you need to count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. This will strengthen you. It will make you better for more trials. And lastly, in Psalm 11, we learn that no matter what may come, fellowship with God is our portion. Not just in heaven, but now and forever. He said in verse 7 of Psalm 11, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness and his countenance beholds the upright. In Philippians 4 and verse 4, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. And the idea is not just rejoice in who the Lord is. You know who the Lord is and how wonderful He is. Rejoice in that. It's certainly something we do. But I think the idea there is that we're in the Lord. The sphere is the Lord. We're in Him. We're in the family of God. We're in the church of our Lord. We're in the fellowship of God. We're in a relationship with God. And as long as you're in the Lord, that's your location spiritually. You're in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. There is always cause for rejoicing. All else may change and fail. But that will not affect your relationship with God unless you let it. And so rejoice And the Lord, that's kind of what we studied in Psalm 23, where he speaks about the Lord being a shepherd and he provides for him, he protects him, he's always with them. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow after me all the days of my life. And he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The New King James has a footnote that says, or to the end of my days for length of days. He's saying not just heaven, but even now. 
I'm in God's house. I'm in God's family. I'm in fellowship with God. And that's all that matters. And that's cause to rejoice. In John 14, Jesus told his apostles, and by extension us, that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. I want to be with God, home in heaven for eternity. But that starts now where I'm at home with God in faithfulness. He's made his home with us if we're faithful to him. And that home is built on that firm foundation that won't be destroyed. All other foundations may crumble, but faith stands steady on the promises and faithfulness of God. If we have God and nothing else, we have everything. We need to realize that. David did. It got him through the most difficult times of his life. And brethren, it'll get us through anything. We need to learn from him, gain patience and comfort so that we can have that hope sustained and realized one day in heaven with God. Before we dismiss to our classes, we're going to be led in a word of prayer.